Well, glad to have all of you here. Good morning to all of you, and we greet those of you who may join us uh, later on the Internet. We're glad that you're here. And as always, for anyone who wants the whole set of notes, uh, if you go to our church website and see view, view, our, view our documents, and when you click on that link, you'll see my name, Don Hewitt. You click on the file that says Don Hewitt, and if you get down through there, the, the series we're working on now is called The First Century Church. And you can find the, the notes up to date, up to this moment, including the copies that I handed out this morning, up to page 14. And uh, we probably aren't going to be done with this for a while, so we call this a mini-series, which I'm not sure that it'll be mini, but it, it will definitely be a series. So uh, and we hope it's, it's been profitable. I'm having uh, fun teaching it, and uh, I hope those who've listened in and those who are here have gotten some value out of it and have enjoyed it half as much as I have. Let's open with a word of prayer this morning, and then we'll jump right back into the scriptures. Father, today we realize that we have a treasure in our hands that is immeasurable. We live in a time when people keep changing what they call the truth, and the truth seems to have no foundation in anything but people's opinions. And we know that that's not the way truth operates. But we know truth comes from you, Father, and truth is found in the Word of God. And we know that we can trust it. So we're thankful that in our hands this treasure we have will never lead us astray, will never give us bad information, though it may not tell us everything we'd like to know. It certainly tells us everything we need to know and a lot beside. Bless in this time of study, Father. Bless in the service that follows that everything might be done to glorify our Lord and Savior because we're here for His sake and not ours. Bless in this time. May the Spirit of God be the teacher. We ask in our Savior's name. Amen. Now, we have been dealing with a series that... uh, follows in a line. We've been doing a Sunday school series that's problems we don't have when we take scripture literally. And we've been dealing with various subjects along the way of things that are generally difficult for modern Christians in Christendom because they don't take scripture literally. In many cases, they don't even go to the scripture at all for what they believe. Now, the subject we're dealing with right now is a subject that perhaps doesn't come up as much as some others, but it does come up, and it's something of interest, I believe, to most Christians, and that is, what was the first century church like? As you come to the end of the first century, as John is the last apostle, what was the first century church like? You know, uh, you can read online, and there's a lot of, uh, there, there are some men now that are telling you the truth that there were a lot of problems. But I know when I was a younger Christian, I always put on the rose-colored glasses, and these people, they were holy. They were, they were giants of the faith. They were all greater, greater believers than any of us could ever hope to be. And but they didn't have the problem of having all the denominations. They didn't have all the tr- Christian tradition that's built up contrary to Scripture. They didn't have all of the stuff that people have added on. I just recently saw one where, where they had a church service, and they had these people up in front when they had the worship team. I've never seen this one. But they had them up there, and they had these like white flags or banners that were waving back and forth in time to the music. And they was like they were. I thought, what is this? A dance troupe? What is this? The, you know, river dance? River dance gone Christian or what? I mean, and all of this they did not have in the early church. <laughs> Frankly, I'm glad they don't. And uh, I don't know, Scott. Do you think you and I could, when we have the music today, can we get back and get up here and lead the worship team or something? Well, Scott and I may try that. We'll have to talk afterwards. <laughs> but but all joking aside, the uh, the first century church was not problem-free, and that's what we've been looking at, is, is what really was going on in the first century church. And, and we've seen so far that, in essence, it's really not any different than the modern church, that there aren't any problems that are really new. The problems that were there are problems that are here. And the major problem we saw was in Revelation 2. Now, we have three parts to this, this series. The first part was what the early church did. 
and that was found in Revelation. And, and the, church of, the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through about 7, describes what the church of Ephesus was like. And it's addressed, the message is addressed to the pastor, to the messenger, which I believe is the pastor. And what, what we find out happened to the first century church, just as John was writing, just before he goes off the scene, he said, you have lost your first, you've left your first love. Now, in Revelation, it's translated, if you look at Revelation 2, verse 4, this, this if you want to summarize what the first century church was actually like, this is the perfect verse to go there. And you can see, in a nutshell, there's a lot of good things said about it, but you have to take into account what it says here. Now, I've got the New King James open up here, and I kind of like the New King James. And, it's, and it says this in Revelation 2.4, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Now, when we went through this, we pointed out very carefully that that word is translated, have left, in, the, in this one word, in, of course, in, in Greek. It's a word that is typically used for forgiveness or sending away. You have sent away your sins. Your sins have been sent away. And this tells you something far different. It's not that this early church and this pastor had somehow overlooked or forgotten or hadn't emphasized the first love. No, 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 no. He sent it away. He sent it away. Now, that is no small indictment. And that's why it is said that in verse 5, Remember, therefore, from whence you have fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly, and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Now, the lampstand, if you go back to the first chapter, the lampstand represented the church in this, in this imagery that, that John is seeing. So what did Jesus say to this pastor? Unless you get yourself straight about what the, your first love is, you send it away. Unless you go back and get it right again, I'm going to take this church away. That sounds pretty serious, but you know what? By 262 A.D., there was no church at Ephesus. And it was probably long before that. From what I read in different places, the church had lost its influence probably 50, 60, 70, 100 years before that. So it, it, it was gone. So this was a serious indictment. They had sent away their first love. Now, why did they do it? How did they do it? And that's what we're going into now. We're moving into the section of what they, how they did it and why they did it. And, it's, and it's, so you can summarize the first century church of all things by using just two verses. And I, and I like doing this whenever possible because if you want to share with, with a friend or with someone that you know that has an interest in this and you get on this subject, you say, you know, I can summarize for you what the early church did and what they were like in just two verses. Just two. The first one would be Revelation 2.4. Correctly understood, you'd have to tell them that, that you have left your first love is literally, no, you sent it away and it's talking to the pastor. He sent his love away. His first love. And the first love, of course, goes right back to the first use of love. What's the first thing we know about love for the church? John 13, 34, and 35. It's to be used one to another. So he sent away the first love, the, the love that the way it was supposed to originally be used, they sent it away. Now, that's what they did. Now, why and how they did it? Well, we're going to cover it, but I can give you a summary of it. First John 2, 15. Stop loving the world. Ah, this is what they did. This is how they did it. They turned from loving the brethren and they started to love the world. Now, we're going to get into how you can see love, love of the world because uh, it's not like we're putting our arms around the system saying, oh, I love you. No, nothing like that. It's not that at all. We'll talk more about it. But wherever, where love is shown, you can see love by what it does. 
And you'll see in the modern church that there is a lot of concern directed to the world that ought to be directed toward the saint. And when you see that concern going to them instead of to the brethren, you're seeing love and you're seeing a misdirection of love. But before we get there, we're doing something I think that is, is uh, perhaps uh, it's interesting and, and uh, I'm doing it for the, for the overall understanding of Scripture. I think it's, it, it's an important thing to know in the overall context of Scripture, facts like these facts that I'm sharing. And it is the order that you can see f- by the warnings about false teachers, you can see the order in which the epistles were written. And, and that may not seem really important, but it really is important because then it helps you to understand a lot more about each individual book and the time that they were written because there will be slightly different things going on that whenever you see the time they're written, you'll be able to understand more fully what was going on. And that will give you a better knowledge of the individual book and of the condition of the church at that given time. Now, the first person that, that warned about the false teachers coming in was none other than the Apostle Paul. And he's the first one to do it. Now, he is, he's going to write. We're going to see. You can see very clearly. It's easy to see that he wrote before Peter did. And it's very easy just by going through the text. Now, in Paul's description, if you look at 2 Corinthians 11, if you, here's another place. If you want a nice, simple, one-verse summary, what do, what do false teachers generally tend to do? It's the same thing they will do today that they did back there. It's not changed. Satan's got a strategy. If it works, Satan's smarter than a lot of people are. He doesn't change his strategy. You know, it always gets me. You guys that watch football and like football as much as I do. Have you watched a game and you'll see in the first half, the coach will have plays sent in. And they'll work like a charm. The running back, he gets through the line. He sweeps to the right. He sweeps to the left. They can't stop him. All of a sudden in the second quarter... They start throwing the ball downfield, and they don't do anything, and the game stalls. And ultimately, they wind up losing the game. And you go back and say, wait a minute. Back in the first quarter, this guy ran up 85 yards carrying the ball about five or six times. Why did they stop doing it? They're stupid. Well, Satan's not stupid like that. If he has has somebody carrying the ball that's going to run 25 yards every quarter or more, he's going to keep running him. And so what Satan does... You can see it summarized. If you want to see how the false teachers operate in a nutshell, here's a beautiful summary you can share with people. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And I think this is a perfect summary to tell you exactly what they're doing. Now, I'm reading from the New King James, and you'll notice there's a difference. And, and I like the New King James because it is the King James updated. And I, I've always kind of liked the King James to a point. But the New King James updates the King James. So if you like the King James and you ever do want a modern translation... This is, the, this is the reliable one. for. There's a number of reasons why this is the better of the modern translations. One of which is, for the, for the benefit of, of Courtney and, and Scott, uh, this is the only modern English translation that follows the majority text in the New Testament. All the others follow the critical text. So the majority text, is, generally speaking, is better. So the New King James is probably the better of all of the modern English translations, if anyone's... But anyway, you can see in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 4, this is the perfect summary. If you want to summarize what false teachers were like then or now, here it is, right staring at us. And we'll read verse 3. It says, But I fear, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For, now, this little word for, I like this word because... Frequently, if you look at it, it's the little word that looks like, in, in Greek, it looks like yap. 
and there's a funny story that goes along with that about YAP. I'll have to tell you about that. I think I have shared that, but it looks just like YAP if you have an interlinear, and it's for, and it's a word that explains. It means because. So how would this, your mind would be corrupted? Because if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, another, a similar Jesus, Another Jesus. Now, what, how would you preach another Jesus? Well, you'd emphasize something different than you and I would emphasize. I've heard Courtney, and I've heard Scott, and I've heard our pastor. And when they talk about Jesus Christ, they're talking about the God-man. If you talk about another Jesus, what are you talking about? The man. Not the God-man, just the man. The great teacher, the great healer, the great social reformer, the one who went out and took care of all the masses of people and... We need to do the same thing as he did. We need to follow his example and walk in his steps. Is that true? That's another Jesus. Oh, he's similar to the one we believe in, but he's not the same. But it gets worse than that. Let's read on. Or if you receive a different spirit. Ooh, now you'll notice it's another in the King James, but it's very clear in the Greek text that we get uh, this word heteros. Have you heard the word heterodoxy or hetero this? Hetero means different. And that's the Greek word we have here. It's just the word that means different. And it should be translated like the New King James does. And you can see it. It says, if you receive a different spirit, what kind of spirit would that be? It's not going to be the Holy Spirit. And, you know, the one thing I have noticed about these false workers, these false teachers, is that they're driven. They're driven. They're driven. They're driven. They never stop. They always go to the point of exhaustion. And I don't think that's how the Holy Spirit works with his people. I don't think he drives you right into the ground to, to accomplish his purpose. But Satan's minions will do that. I've seen it. You may have seen it too. They're just driven relentlessly. You, you see it, well, going outside of religion, going into politics. Look at what, they, what some of the liberal agenda is doing. They just will not stop. They never rest. They keep going and going and going and to the point of exhaustion. Why? Because they have a different spirit, and it's not from God. And then look what it says after that. Or if you have received a different gospel, which, uh, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, a different gospel which you've not accepted, you may well put up with it. A different gospel, not another of the same kind. It's a different gospel. Now there you. This in a nutshell. This is what false teachers do. They have a similar Jesus if they come in the name of Christ, but they have a different spirit. They're not concerned about showing love to the body. They're concerned about what's going on out there in this world. We've got to help those people. We've got to do what this great social reformer Jesus did. Is that, is that really so? No, it's not so. It's not so. That's a complete misunderstanding of Christ's miracles. Oh, that's, that's, just look at John 5. You know the man that was there at John 5 by the pool of Bethesda? He was there for 38 years. But you know what? He wasn't the only person that was there. And I know that's true because he said that he couldn't get into the water when it was stirred up because others came before him. So if he was the only one there, he would have been healed by now, because there, but there were other people. Why did Jesus just pick that one person if he was here to heal everybody? Why did he pick the one person? Pretty good, pretty simple reason, I think. The guy had been there 38 years. There was no way that the Jews or anyone else or that man himself could claim, oh, it just happened. I just got lucky. It just it just was a temporary illness that I had for two weeks. No, 38 years later, he finally gets to walk. Jesus picked him to prove who he was as a sign. Not that he, if, he'd come, if he'd come to take care of everybody, 
then why were there other people still at the Pool of Bethesda? Why weren't there other people healed that were there? There weren't. They weren't healed. So you find that you have a different gospel, and, and, and you have a, this different gospel, this different way of being saved. How is a person saved? Well, you listen to these false teachers. They really don't have a message of salvation per se. Their, their idea of good news is, well, we're all the family of God. We're all children of God. It's the brotherhood of man, and God forgives everybody, and, and God accepts you all. And there's a cliche that I just despise. It's God don't make no junk. Have you ever heard that? That's not only stupid, but it's poor English, and that poor English drives me crazy. I'm not an English grammarian, but, but I do know a little bit of English. I know enough to not say anything that's stupid. Ugh. But anyway, you, you find that the idea that they have, their gospel, their good news is, you don't have to do anything. God already, God already accepts you as you are. He loves you just like you are. There are no, the, oh, the, you have to take in all these people, all the alphabet people and everything else because we're all part of God's family and God doesn't make any mistakes, so these people must be wrong. Everybody, brotherhood of God, brother of man, fatherhood of God. Is that really the gospel? No, this is, this is the summary right here. Verse 2 Corinthians 7, 4, this tells you. So Paul is the first person that wrote about this. Now, I know Peter wrote after him because if you look over at 2 Peter chapter 2, and we're in the bottom of page 10 if you're following in our notes. Um, I know, Brother Courtney, it's hard to do sometimes. You, get, you start skipping ahead of your notes and forgetting about them. Every time I've heard Courtney say that, I've sat there and snickered to myself and saying, yep, I know what he's talking about. Yep, I do the same thing. <laughs> Misery loves company, brother. We all have that same love <laughs> of, of doing things like that. But in... in, in uh, you find in Second Peter chapter 2, as Peter is coming toward the end of his time, he's writing his second epistle, and he says, but there were also false teachers among the people, even as there are false prophets among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. So they're going to be, now you'll notice once again, when Peter writes, it hasn't happened because he says there shall be, and that's clearly in English a good translation of the, of the Greek text. It's a future tense. There shall be. I mean, it hasn't happened yet, in other words. So you might think, well, he's writing at the same time Paul is writing. But you'll notice in our notes, if you look at, in Second Peter 3, just down across the page, and look at verse 15 and 16, you'll find that Peter is definitely writing after Paul. Now, you might not have noticed that, but it's, it's when you put that together, he says false teachers are coming also, and you might think, well, he's right there with Paul. Well, just, be, just because Paul quit writing and went home to be with the Lord doesn't mean immediately the false teachers came in. They still didn't. Because look at 2, Timothy, or 2 Peter 3, uh, verse 14 and 15. Uh, it says, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to his wisdom, has written to you, has written, completed action. He's already done his writing. Also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, which some things are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable people rest to their own, twist to their own destruction, as they also do the rest of the scriptures. So you'll notice... Paul has already written, he said he's already written, it. He has, as he has written to you, also in all his epistles. So Paul's already done his writing. So now we find out that Peter is going to write a little bit later than Paul. And there's something else that's, that is of interest here too. That uh, he has somebody with him that Paul used to have with him. 
And uh, you look down at, and uh, let's see, in First Peter chapter 5, and I think I confused myself in my notes here, uh, you'll find that there's somebody with him uh, back in First Peter 5, 12. If you turn back there, you can see there's a person named here. It says, by Sylvanus, our faithful brethren, brother as I, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. By Sylvanus. Now, Sylvanus is, is a Latin form. That there's, I have a footnote down here that Sylvanus and Silas are the same person. Just whether it's, whether it's a Greek-based name or a Latin-based name, either one, it's the same person. And what is interesting here is it says, by Sylvanus. Now, if you have an interlinear, you look at it, and it's actually, it's literally, it's through Sylvanus. What does that mean? Well, it means that Sylvanus was his amanuensis. Paul had an amanuensis, and he wrote from him, and Tertius was one of the individuals that wrote for Paul in some of his letters. You'll see it toward the end. Tertius will greet the church in an epistle. And so it says, through Sylvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you. So he's written through, so Sylvanus is with him. Now you say, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, if you look in the top of page 11, yeah, top of 11 in your notes, you'll notice that, that it says, Paul and 2 Thessalonians 1 1, it says, By Paul and Sylvanus and Timotheus under the church of Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, he was with Paul, but now he's with Peter. Now, that suggests something very obvious that, that Paul is probably at least in jail and, probably, and may be dead by this point. But now, we have a footnote down here as, as well is that. Uh, Silas may not have been his constant companion because we can only trace him in the book of Acts from chapters 15 through 18 into Macedonia. And after that, we kind of lose track of him. So I don't know whether he was Paul's... It doesn't appear that he was Paul's companion very much after that. But when Peter comes along now, he's an amanuensis from Peter, which indicates that he's got that he's become important to Peter. And so it, it kind of adds to the fact that Paul probably, as Peter writes, is in jail. So he writes after the fact, even though they still have not come into the church. But now, uh, we have, so that means Peter writes second, Paul is first. Now we're going to come to the person who writes next, and that would be Jude. Now, Jude and Jude chapter, uh, well, Jude chapter one, I guess you don't have to say that, do you? There's only one chapter in Jude. If anybody ever tries to tell you, you find it in Jude chapter 2, verse 3, you know that they're, uh, either they're ignorant or they're trying to play a game, a trick on you, because there's only one chapter here. But you find Jude, a bond slave, a bond servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied unto you. So you have Jude, a brother of Jesus, one serve of Jesus and a brother of James. Now, I don't think there's any question that, that uh, this brother of James, that he was, in essence, a half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Because if you look, and it's printed in your notes, you can see it here in, on page 11. The brothers of Jesus include James and Jude in Matthew 13, 55, and 56. Now, his critics say this about him. And they said, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brother James, there's one, Joseph and Simon and Judas, or it could be shortened to Jude. And his sisters, are they not all with us? Whence hath this man all these things? So he's no, there's no doubt in my mind that this 
man was well enough known that all he had to say was the brother of James. And James was the big, big shot at the church of Jerusalem. He was the big wig, and this is his brother. So he has kind of, you might say, de facto status as being somebody. But I think there's, a, there's another reason why he was so well accepted. And this is something that uh, uh, I presented to Dr. Schaefer years ago when I was in seminary. For those who know Dr. Schaefer, he said, you know, that could be possible. He says, that could be so. When he, had said, when he said that you came up with a good idea, you always felt good because that man knew so much. And he was so far above anybody I've ever known. Such a great teacher. But I think there's an interesting possibility here. And you'll notice on page, page 11. Now, I haven't seen anybody say this before. And please, this is my opinion. I can't prove it decisively from Scripture, although I can say it does not contradict Scripture. And it fits into Scripture quite nicely. But it's still my opinion. But I think it opens an interesting possibility about this man. Now, let's assume for a moment that Matthew has a chronologically accurate list of the, of the children that are born to Joseph and Mary. Because there are, and some of the other accounts, I believe Judas is switched to an earlier time. Like he's, instead of being the fifth son, as remember Mary had Jesus in front of Joseph. And, and they're just, they're saying, they, they say here that they're looking at, uh, okay. James Joseph, yeah. So the, these are children of Mary, and the James Joseph, Simon, and Judas would be obviously Joseph's kids. But so if you keep Judas at the end, and I said there was one that switched, I think that switched Simon and Judas in the order. But assuming Matthew's chronological, that puts him as being the fifth child in the family because Jesus would be the first, even though he's not named. So he's the fifth. Now it says, it says, says his sisters, are they not with us? Okay, so that means there's two sisters. If they were born in front of Judas, that would make Judas the seventh born, wouldn't it? Mm -hmm. Because I think you find this man back, he's a prominent man, and he was so prominent, he didn't have to name who he was, because if you look, and I think this is point C on page 11, I said it can't be proven conclusively, and so therefore I say it's my opinion, but I think it fits beautifully in here. This Jude could very well be a, that well-known person in Acts 15, 22, where it says uh, this, and this is right out of the, copyright out of the scripture. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, surnamed Barsabas, and Silas, who you know, we're going to know as Silvanus, chief men, among, you know, chief men among the brethren. They're important people. Now, Barsabbas is Aramaic for son seven. <laughs> And it would be something like a nickname. Now, guess who son seven would be, if I'm correct? Judas. Jude. I think this is the Jude that wrote the epistle of Jude. And it would explain perfectly why he wouldn't have to say anything about himself other than he's a Jude that's a brother of James. Everybody say, oh, that's Barsabas. That's, a se- that's son seven. You know, I mean, I don't know... Uh, there are nicknames you can have. I know I had a friend that was called the Run of the Litter one time. He was known as the Runt. <laughs> so that's probably worse. Than, I think I'd like to be called the Seventh Son better, or Son Seven. I think that's better than being called the Runt. Or I used to be called Fat Boy, which <clears throat> I still I still deserve that name. But uh, so, but I, I believe based upon that. Now that's just that's just something. It's opinion, but I think it's it's something to consider, and it would certainly explain why Jude was so easily and so readily accepted. He was Barsabas. They knew him. He was a chief man at the church in Jerusalem that could be sent out. Silas and, and Jude were sent out. And so they were evidently important men. 
Now, we can say, if we're back in the book of Jude, we can say for certain, without any question at all, that Jude wrote after Peter. And the reason we say that, look at verse 3. Beloved, I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation. I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend for the faith which was once, uh, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Why? Because, now there's your word for again, I like because better, because certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Or it probably should be even our Lord Jesus Christ. They are some that twist, and you notice it says they deny the only Lord God. They deny him. That kind of sounds like what... uh, Paul said, another Jesus. By saying another Jesus, by denying, they will deny his deity. They won't overtly unless you push them. But if you push them, they'll, if you ask some of the people today that are out there teaching these, these do-gooders, if you ask them, I'd like to ask somebody, say, like, for example, Joel Olstein, I'd like to ask him, is Jesus the God-man? Is he God in flesh? I'd, be like, I'd like to see that. I'd like to ask him. I don't know what his answer would be, but I suspect it might not be what, what I'd like to hear. But so these, these individuals, but you'll notice it says they have crept in unnoticed, crept in unawares. This had happened because you'll notice they had crept in. That's, that's a completed action. That's past tense. So sometime before he wrote, which would mean he had to have been writing after Second Peter because Peter said they're, they're, they're going to come. Now Jude says, hey, they're already here. They're already here. They've crept in unnoticed. Now, you'll notice that there's a unique flavor about that creeping in being unnoticed. And the way the New King James, they crept in unnoticed, that, that, that's kind of, it, it makes it sound like they're a bunch of you know, thieves. You know, when, I, when my kids were little, I used to pull my coat up and go, na 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 like I was a bad guy sneaking in. And it's kind of that idea that they sneak in and they're, they're coming in for ill purposes. They crept in unnoticed. And, uh, <laughs> I still do that with my kids. <laughs> Even though they're grown up, I'll still do that once in a while. <laughs> I never stop being a... Never stop being a clown as a father. But so you'll notice something we, we said in here, this unique flavor of coming in without being noticed is important because it tells you something. It means either the pastor was not paying attention enough to sound doctrine, to notice these people, or to be able to discern what they were doing, or perhaps he didn't know doctrine well enough to realize that he had a heretic in his midst. And that's either way you look at this, that is not a good thing to say because if these people come in and they come in unnoticed, then they must not be screening them. They must not have a new membership class like we do. That's why the new membership class is important. You can see, here's a good reason for it right here. You don't want to get people in. If, if you get people in that, that start denying the deity of Christ and start throwing away grace and twisting it into, into a license to do whatever you want, you get to that point, you've got a problem in your church. And so... Jude lived at a time when that was going on. And so this is an indictment. It says they've crept in unawares. It's really an indictment to the pastors and the leaders and even the people. I hope that if someone ever got up in this, behind this pulpit and started saying things that were contrary to Scripture, that you folks would immediately, like that, recognize them and they would not be welcome here. I would hope so. I'm pretty sure, At the moment, I'm sure that would happen. But so that puts us down to the Apostle John. Now, if you look over at 1 John chapter 2, we know that he was the last, uh, he was the last writer. We, we know that because of the book of Revelation and other things, but it's also identifiable in terms of the false teachers because look what he says in, in, uh, starting in verse 18. 
of second. This is First John chapter two, beginning at verse eighteen. It says, "Little children, it is the last hour, and as you've heard that the antichrist is coming, even now many antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour." Now, notice what he says: "They went out from us." Completed action. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For had they, for had they been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be manifest that none of them were of us. They went out, completed action. So now as John writes, it's after the time of Jude because Jude says they've crept in. Now John says they're already gone. They've left. They're gone already. So that puts John later. And it it could be, it makes you think that it could be 10, 15, 20 years later that they've done their damage. So there's there's some time in here. And this helps you to get a a feel for the, the epistles. You have you have Peter, you have Paul writing. Then you have Peter. Then you have Jude writing his, his little epistle. And then you have John. So you have, a, you have a sense of the order of how the books were written. And so, uh, and by the way, that word for they would have continued with us, that's an important word because that's, that's a form of the word to abide. If, if you know the Greek, it's meno. It's the word to abide. And it's a word that, that means where you belong. It's where something is comfortable, where it belongs, where it feels at home, where it's wanted. And so if these false teachers had been of the faith, they would have felt they belonged. They would have belonged and wanted to be there. But they left because they didn't sense they were wanted. Maybe that's the reason they left. They didn't get what they wanted. They didn't feel like they were wanted. And, you know, I've run into that. I've run into... More recently, there was there was an individual that was attending attending Valley some years ago, and I think Courtney would know who he was if I mentioned his name. Uh, but he was trying to spread a mid-trib rapture, and you know what? He he didn't feel welcome. He didn't feel wanted, and it wasn't because anybody said to him, "Oh, shut up and go away." We just wouldn't listen to what he had to say. We wouldn't agree with him, and so he didn't feel like he belonged. Well, he didn't. But he was the one who felt that. None of us. He just left on his own subsequently because he, he, he couldn't, couldn't continue. He couldn't remain. That, that word for abide is an important word because it's where something is welcome, wanted, where it belongs. And it's, it's a very important word. So, so now you have James, Peter, or James, uh, the epistles. Of course, the book of James, we didn't mention that, but we know that was written early because of the nature of the book. He was writing to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. James wasn't even writing to the church. He didn't understand the uniqueness of the church that early. So you have James wrote first, and Peter, Paul, Jude, and finally John. So in a nutshell, there you have it. Now, we want to go on to this, and, and John is going to reveal in First John, and we already looked at it, so you already know the, the, the essence of it, is, is how and why did the early church send their, their first love away? But now there's something else important in this that you need to understand along with this because there is spiritual maturity that's involved here. And if you look at 1 John chapter 2, this is something that uh, I had seen years ago and it really, it really surprised me that it was here so clearly because I'd never heard anybody teach it. And unfortunately, that happens a lot. Courtney, you can testify to that too. You run across something and say, gee, why hasn't somebody seen this before me? But that's probably because a lot of guys just don't study the scripture very much. And they don't teach from it very much. They teach tradition. Christian tradition. You know, the Jews had what they called the Talmud, which was the traditional interpretation of the Old Testament. And the Jews would preach from the Talmud. Well, we have our Talmud today, too. It's called commentaries. 
and a lot of men preach out of the commentary, so they won't see this because the commentaries don't see this. But there, there's a definite progression of maturity. If you look at First John chapter 2, you can see it. It's right there, and it's, it's pretty obvious that there are three levels of maturity that John's going to name. Beginning at 1 John 2, verse 12. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you've known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I, have, I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know whom, him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Stop loving the world. Who do you suppose was the one who was having trouble loving the world? Context. The young men. Now you see something about levels of maturity that are here. There is a distinct level of maturity. There are the, and this is, John uses this. The little children is, and you'll notice we're down in the bottom, page 12, where we have under point B, where John reveals how and really why the early church sent their first love away. And it's, it's a matter of spiritual maturity. Now, it tells you something that really is kind of positive about the, early, the first century church, but not entirely, because they go, they're going to fall into verse 15, and that's the failure. But you have little children. It's a term of endearment for those that are young in the faith. Now, you know, it doesn't say anything about how they handle their spiritual enemies. But it does for the young men. And it doesn't say anything for the fathers either, but it makes it sound like the fathers have gone to the point where they are not having a problem with Satan or the world, which would also mean the flesh isn't a problem. So you have to understand some of these things because John's not writing about the things Paul talked about. Paul's already talked about the flesh. John doesn't have to go into the flesh. He doesn't have to tell you about that. He doesn't even have to tell you about how to put the armor on because in Ephesians 6, Paul's already done all that. And John knows those things are there. And those books, according to Peter, those books were collected because they refer to the writings of Paul, his letters. So there's, there's knowledge. So John's not going to have to mention the enemies. So if you don't see him here, don't be too surprised because that should have been common knowledge to the people at that time because Paul wrote and Paul taught and the disciples or other apostles picked it up and they shared it too. But so you see that with the little children, it says that they, what they know about the Father is that their sins are forgiven. They know that in verse 12. It says, you little children, your sins are forgiven. You know that. They, they understand their sins are forgiven. Now that may not sound like a lot, but you know what? There's a lot of people that seem to forget that their sins are forgiven because every time they commit an act of sin, they feel guilty as though they're going to get punished. No, your sins are forgiven. Now, if you're feeling guilty, maybe it's because you know that your Heavenly Father is not exactly pleased with what you've done. But your sin is forgiven. But now you can, you can mess up the benefits of your salvation. You can mess up your fellowship with God because God isn't going to be smiling on you when you're committing sin. It's just not going to happen. So the little children, they do know that their sins are forgiven. And verse 13, I've written, I write to you little children because you've known the Father. Now, there again, that may not sound like anything too much, but if you remember what it says, hold your finger here and look back at Romans chapter 8. Uh, this might seem like a small thing, but when you were first saved, if you remember, I don't think it was a small thing, because I remember when I, for the first time I was able to say, Father, and know that it was for real. It wasn't a small thing to me then, and sometimes it still isn't. 
And Romans 8.15, now we're just going to jump into the middle of context, and, and for the sake of time, our time is up already, but uh, we don't want to leave you hanging too much. Um, it says, in Romans 8.15, it says, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, or if you please, son placing. I wish they would get that right. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. Abba is, a, is an endearing term. It's like Papa or Daddy. You know, I always liked it when my little kids would call me daddy. I like when my grandson calls me papa. I definitely like that too. So it's a term of endearment. But you see, little children, they know who their spiritual father is. And when they say papa or daddy, there's a little bit of endearment there. And there's a closeness. There's an appreciation of their father. So little children that are just saved in this level, they know who their sins are forgiven. And they know who their daddy is spiritually. And there's an endearment. There's a closeness there. Now, I, I, I know, and I'm going to criticize modern Christendom. Because we get awfully formal about our relationship with God. Now, I'm not saying we should be Pentecostals and rolling on the floor. It'd be nice. We wouldn't have to have church cleanup day because people would pick up all the dust. <laughs> but I'm not saying we should be like that. But I am saying that there is a place for a little bit of emotion. Because what you think, what you believe, what you know up here eventually starts to come out in how you feel. Now, that feeling is not the proof of it. The feeling, if I feel giddy and happy about things in church, that's not the proof of, of my spiritual condition. It is the outworking of what I'm knowing. It's, it's how it's affecting what I think comes out as to how I feel. And everybody shows it differently. So, but please, let's not be so, let's not be prone to be formal about our faith. There's no harm in being happy if you're a Christian. There's no harm in being a smile. No harm in, in just enjoying things. Now, if anybody wants to roll on the floor, that's another story. <laughs> but but I, I think there's, there's a place for it. And you can see that in, in these. Now, we'll have to come back, and we're going to come back in a couple weeks because I'll be speaking the uh, second week, I believe it is, in Sunday school again. And uh, it makes it kind of hard, so keep your notes. But we're going to come back. On, we'll be on page 12, if you're following, and under, under point B about young men. We're going to talk more about them. But I hope you can see... That there's a lot of information here that we can learn and be benefited by. And the beautiful thing is, from my point of view, I like it when you can summarize things. Because remember, you can summarize the condition of the early church, Revelation 2.4, 1 John 2.15. And you can see what they did. They, they sent their first love away. Why they did it? Because they were loving the world. And there it is in a nutshell. And what do false teachers do? 2 Corinthians 11.4. They have another Jesus, similar one, but not ours, and a different gospel, and they have a different spirit. And there it is. You can summarize those things. And that, well, I like it. When you can summarize things, I'm a simple person. I like things nice and simple, and it's that simple. And so it's a beautiful thing that Scripture, when we take it literally, there are so many things that are so much simpler than what men make. And I personally, I like simplicity. And when I take Scripture literally... I find the truth and I find it stated simply. And that's great.